Welcome to Everything STEAM. I'm your host, Sam Stanford. As a physicist and structural engineer with Jacobs Engineering, I've made many connections with some bright individuals who are either working, studying, or self-taught and passionate about our particular topics of discussion. This episode is very exciting. We are going to talk about bees. More specifically, we will provide you with a Bees 101 introduction with cool information regarding their biology, evolution, and diversification. Then we will transition into global trends within native and domesticated bee populations with proper actions of involvement. And we finish the episode talking about our guest path to entomology and a touch about science communication. So speaking of our guest star, please meet Abby Lehner. Abby graduated with her master's in biology and is now pursuing a PhD in entomology. Her past projects have included comparing bee communities in native and restored sites in New York, as well as exploring how the bee community at Pinnacles National Park has changed over time. And she began science communication, as known as Entomology Abby, in 2020. She films and edits educational videos covering topics in entomology, ecology, conservation, life as a graduate student, and being a woman in STEM. So, now that you've been introduced to Abby and the topic of this podcast, we are going to head into our first segment. Enjoy. So, Abby, welcome to the show. It's so nice to be talking to you today. It's awesome to be talking to you, too. I'm so excited. Yeah, so apparently you just started your PhD program. How is that going so far? Are you are you really excited? I am. I'm in the first week. Just met with my advisor today. So, so far, so good. We'll see how it goes. Awesome. Where are you studying? I study at UC Davis. Ooh, super exciting. Very, very smart. <laughs> and what's your focus, like, overall? So my PhD will be in entomology, and I'm interested in working with bees in urban environments and looking at how they're affected by urban heat waves. That's extremely perfect for everything that we're going to be talking about today. And this segment, this first segment, we're literally just doing a Bees 101, an introduction to bees. And to get this kind of kickstarted, we should start, I guess, with the bare bones, right? If I were to ask you the question, could you give me a clickbait answer of like, what are bees? Yeah, that's a good question. Bees are fancy wasps is the answer I'd probably give you. Um, Bees evolved from wasps originally. And so they share a lot of characteristics with wasps. And really the only technical trait to tell apart a bee and a wasp is that bees have plumose branched hairs and wasps do not interesting explain plumose branched for like the lay yeah so instead of just a straight hair like the hair on your head uh it splits into a bunch of different ends so they're fluffy which is great for collecting pollen the pollen kind of sticks to that like velcro Oh, okay. So kind of like maybe like a mop kind of like at the end where it just like has a bunch of dangly hairs. That's pretty cool. Exactly. Or if you had a a really bad split end, something like that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Understood. So we've established basically what bees are. So they come from wasps, right? So that's the start of their evolutionary track. Could you go into more detail on that? Maybe explain how they've evolved over time? Because from my understanding is that they've been around since the early Cretaceous, right? You got it. 
So bees were fully evolved into the early Cretaceous period. So they were evolving from wasps slightly before that. They evolved from a special group of wasps called specifiform wasps. And these wasps were hunting insects called thrips. Thrips are very small insects that you find in flowers. Uh, they are pollinators themselves and they feed on pollen and nectar. It can also be a pest in some cases, but generally beneficial insect. So these wasps were hunting thrips, which is how pollen was getting introduced to their diet incidentally from eating the thrips because the thrips were consuming pollen. So eventually, falling down this line, bees became essentially vegetarian wasps only consuming pollen and nectar, uh, with only one exception to that rule. Really neat evolutionary path, one of my favorites. And we just learned this fairly recently, the last 10 years or so about oh. bees. Wow, that is very interesting. And I also did a little bit of digging. So, you know, please correct me if I'm wrong. And over, you know, the, I would say from a hundred, let's just say like, uh, put a tag on it, like 130 million years ago, because that's obviously pretty variable. And on the scale of time, right, to about uh, up to six, 40 to 60 million years ago, you saw a really big boom in terms of the types of bees because of the evolution of flowering plants. Am I right? Yeah. So that is one really big aspect of insect diversity in general is their co-evolution with flowering plants. It allowed a lot of different insects to become specialized to different types of plants if they're consuming nectar and pollen and different mechanisms to get that nectar and pollen from the plant. So that's one of the factors that's led to quite a lot of bee diversity as well as competition. Wow. That's that's really cool. Uh, I love the the coevolution stories. It's not just cut and dry <laughs> in that manner. And they they were pretty much seeking a different food source, right, to be able to get away from what wasps were doing. There was a niche that needed, I guess, in the most simplest terms, there was a niche that needed to be filled, and then they filled it. But then, because flowering plants were diversifying at absurd rates, they were able to continue to niche themselves down in different species to take upon this plant in this area or this plant in this area. So what a really cool track. Like, <laughs> that's that's beautiful. It's like a, 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 a tree branch. Exactly. And it's even, you know, continued into more recent times. For example, bees in um, like Mediterranean climates or more desertic regions tend to be much more diverse than other areas of the world, which is pretty unusual for animals as a whole. Generally, you see animals are more diverse in tropical regions and not so much in like the Nearctic, for example, and that's really not the case at all with bees. And we think it's because of that extreme competition of flowers in those types of regions because they only bloom for a short amount of time, right? You only oh, see a bloom mm. in like a desert for a couple weeks, for example. Those bees have to be really, really closely intertwined with the flowers by specializing on different plants, which, you know, led to the diversification of bee species. You're also reducing the competition for that very short-lived resource, basically. Yeah. And that kind of makes me think if 
they're feeding upon these certain niche groups of flowering plants and they're only around for a few weeks out of the year, that would then also change the way that each individual bee type would go about their business through creating whatever byproducts they do to facilitate reproduction. Yeah, exactly. I mean, a lot of bees have sort of unique traits, you know, whether that is in reproduction, but also in feeding. Some use floral oils, some go more for nectar, some go more for pollen, Mm. some include even microbes and fungus into their diets. So interesting. There's a lot of interesting, yeah, specializations. So we've kind of hinted here that there's a lot of types of bees, right? The layperson, whenever they think about bees, the first thing that pops into their mind is like the honeybee or, (laughs) you know, Um, it would be cool to talk about some of your favorite types of solitary or native bees and just explain how many types of bees are out there as of we know, you know, rounding, of course, like. Yeah, so um, you're definitely right. The average person thinks of honeybees, maybe bumblebees also. Uh, But there are thousands of types of bees. So in North America, we have a little over 4,000 bee species in the world. There's a little over 20,000 bee species described. You know, there are (laughs) new species we're finding all the time. Uh, But the honeybee is really just one of those. And bees are very diverse in the forms they come in. You know, they're not all black and yellow. They don't all make honey, don't all live in a hive. Uh, that sort of thing, you know, don't all sting after dying. There's a lot of Mm -hmm. common misconceptions associated with the honeybee because that's the most popular bee because of its necessity in agriculture. Uh So bees are really spectacular in their diversity. They come in just about every color of the rainbow. Some nest in the ground, some are cavity nesting. So they'll nest in like logs or rocks or hollowed out plant stems. Some even nest in abandoned snail shells. So cute. What? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) But my favorite bees are cuckoo bees. And similar to cuckoo birds, they're little thieves who go and lay their (laughs) eggs in other bees' nests. And then those bees hatch and eat all of the resources that the mama bee left for her and for her baby. And she the bee will eat the the other bee as well. So they're vicious little things, but so fascinating. Wow. Okay. <laughs> That's not what, whenever you said they're so cute and then you'd like go on to say, oh, by the way, you know, <laughs> they just steal other, you know, other babies' homes and then just eat the babies and their resources. You know, that, that's, that's Devour cute. each other. It's adorable. <laughs> I don't know if I have a favorite type of bee, but there there was a bee uh, species, and maybe you can name it. I don't know, possibly, but it's in California, at least for the documentary that I was watching. And these bees will go to a water source. They're usually at like a beach somewhere in California, and they'll just go to the water and they'll suck in water into their abdomen. They'll take it back. And they'll go to the cliff sides and they'll literally spit the water out and claw out holes, burrow holes into the cliff side and then do their reproduction process that way, which is really fascinating, I think. But they also um, resemble bumblebees so that they can tell like predators, hey, go away, I'll sting you. But they actually are, they don't have stingers at all. They just mimic what bumblebees look like. 
you can tell the difference of them by where the stripes are on their bottoms, which is really cool. Yeah, there are actually a handful of bees that have a similar behavior when they're nesting in a really hard packed surface for them to get water just to loosen it up so they can actually dig out the nest. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the ones you're referring to are specific species of digger bee, um, but they have those really distinct bands mm-hmm. like bumblebees do. Yeah. I wish I could remember it. If, if only if I was an entomologist, <laughs> I, <laughs> I wish I, I wish I knew it was literally a couple of days ago, whenever I was starting to get ready for this, but oh well. So let me ask you this question. What are some common misconceptions about bees that you feel like are important to communicate to someone like myself? Yeah, so we did start to touch on some of the misconceptions about bees a little bit. Mm -hmm. But first of all, I think it's just important to know how diverse bees are, right? They're not all honeybees. Honeybees were introduced to the United States from Europe for agricultural purposes. So they're not native here, and they're actually harmful to native bees. Because of their popularity in agriculture, there's a lot of traits specific to honeybees that get labeled for all bees. For example, having a queen and living in a hive. Most bees are solitary, something like 70 to 80% of bees are solitary. They don't have queen, they don't live in a hive. There are some varying levels of sociality within bees. You know, some will like live in a colony with their sisters, but have their own nest space, for example. But for the most part, they're solitary. And uh, most bees don't die after stinging. That's another Uh, trait known only to honeybees. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's because honeybees have these barbed stingers. So when it goes through your skin, it sticks. And as they fly away or you smack them off of you or whatever, part of their organs remain attached to the stinger. And that's why they die. But most bees don't have a barbed stinger, so they could sting multiple times if they chose to. Some bees don't have stingers at all. And some bees have stingers that are so small they can't even go through your skin. Um, I find that bees tend to be very friendly. People get really scared about their stings and whatnot. But I find that honeybees are actually probably the most aggressive bee, at least in my experience. Um, I've had my hand in a net, like irritating the bees and they're still not stinging me generally. Interesting. Imagine, imagine if uh, evolution in the grand scheme of things was actually pretty quick, you know, the honeybees would end up like somehow evolving to not have a barb stinger attached to their organs. (laughs) Um, I know, then they would really be painful, like it keeps stinging you over and over again. Yeah, okay, maybe not. Um, Yeah, you know, and another thing that's also really important to point out is that there are differences in the societies of these bees that have like colonies, right? In terms of the way that we've established this over time is that certain certain species are matriarchal versus patriarchal. And one thing that I've noticed is that bees are extremely matriarchal. Am I right by saying that? Yeah. Yeah, like the the males are based on just like reproduction purposes and like the females do everything. They are the mainstay. It's it's pretty cool. Uh, do you mind running through the roles really quick of like a colony of bees? So with a honeybee, for example, you have the queen. Her two main jobs are laying eggs. She lays all of the eggs for the colony. 
And then using her pheromones to communicate to the colony the needs. So, oh, we need more food. We need to lay more eggs. We need to expand. We need to move locations, whatever it may be. That's basically the queen's job. Then there are the worker bees. So these are all female bees. Mm -hmm. And throughout their lifetime, they have different jobs. So when they first hatch, for example, they typically work in the bee nursery, let's say, to tend to the other bee larvae that are developing. Then they could become queen attendants or they might be focused on building new honeycomb. Um, And then later in their life, they will be going out to collect pollen and nectar for the hive. Then there are drones, which are the male bees. And the drones, uh, as you said, they don't really do too much. They're (laughs) hanging out around the hive. They're there for mating with the queen. And and that's that's about it for the male bees. And they aren't even around all year long. They're seasonal. So yeah, that's the general structure of a honeybee colony. And then native bees sort of have different varieties. Honeybees are like as social as you can possibly get. Mm -hmm. And very few other bees are like that. Stingless bees um, have a similar social structure, but then bumblebees are slightly less social. So like the queen overwinters and builds a brand new colony herself each spring versus for example, like orchid bees are what's called quasi-social. So they have some, you know, sisterly care together at the nest, but they don't have a queen that they serve. So there's sort of different levels of these jobs in a colony, depending upon the species. Interesting. Why do you think we chose to go after honeybees for agriculture? Is it because that their colonies are much larger and have greater output? Or is it for some other reason that maybe is just underlying and never really communicated? So I think that there are a couple of big reasons why we choose to go for honeybees. One is that they're producing a product. Most bee species don't make honey or enough honey to be farmed, at least like bumblebees, for example, make a little bit of honey. You can't farm it. So honeybees make honey and wax, which we use for a lot of different products. True. As you mentioned, their large colony size is very conducive to pollinating a lot of plants. Mm. And honeybees are really quite resistant to a lot of our poor agricultural practices. So (laughs) pesticide use, they're quite resistant to. They're pretty resistant to monocultured areas. This is areas like massive areas covered in one crop you'll still see a load of honeybees in there but native bees can't survive just because there's no variety in the diet those are the biggest reasons i would say that honeybees are so widely used in agriculture okay yeah that makes sense one last thing i want to talk about before we run into our first commercial break I really enjoy the story of how queens become queens it's very very interesting. Can you take me through that at all? Yeah. So it's nothing too crazy. I mean, it's a, it's bizarre, I would say, but like um, they're just fed special food, essentially. So when the queen bee lays her eggs, they're all the same. And the ones that the colony decides will become queens are fed what's called a royal jelly. It's like yeah. a specialized honey with different chemicals inside of it and this like triggers 
let's say, light switches inside of the bee that says, okay, I'm going to become a queen now. Even though all of the bees have those same genes, it's just those like light switches going on and off. Okay. From my understanding is that if multiple of these queen bees hatch at once, they'll like fight to the death. And whoever wins is queen. That's, yeah. that's so gladiator. It's so crazy. I love it, it. It is. A lot of bees have this um, type of fighting. You know, if a queen wants to take over another hive or if, you know, there's two queens in the same nest, they'll fight. It's pretty common in wasps as well. It's very, it's brutal out there. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. So... Uh, the last thing, it, well, no, actually, I have a couple more things, if you don't mind. It's just curiosity kills the cat here. <laughs> so my understanding is that royal jelly is only, is it only consumed by the queen and that every worker bees and the drones take on what's called um, like a bread? Is that right? Or do they all uh, indulge in in this royal jelly? It wouldn't make sense based on the hierarchy. Yeah, so to my knowledge, only the queen bee gets royal jelly. Okay. And then other bees are fed, yeah, essentially what you said. It's like a pollen loaf, it's called, um, which is a mixture of pollen and nectar. Okay. I read a quick article. I'll at least say it was sourced by Cornell, so it's not like crazy. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, make sure you check your sources, by the way. Uh, So... They were explaining a bit in the abstract before getting into the weeds that the pollen bread keeps the other female bees, the worker bees, sterile, while um, the royal jelly uh, doesn't typically do that, which is interesting, kind of a dynamic chemically. Yeah, so in eusocial insects, sort of one of the defining traits, let's say, is that they have these separation of jobs they have a caste system and typically those different jobs are reflected with changes in the physical appearance of the insect as well in this case it's an internal change but the Mm -hmm. queen bee needs to not be sterile obviously because she's laying lots of eggs right but honeybees have essentially given up their ability to reproduce for the good of the hive Mm. Honeybees are altruistic, which is one of the traits required to be eusocial. So they will, you know, die for the good of the colony. It's essentially when you think of a hive, it's one organism, right? Mm. Rather than a bunch of little ones with their own mind, right? That's like where the hive mind comes from, uh, that they uh, are all working for the good of the colony rather than the good of the individual. What great nationalistic propaganda. (laughs) (laughs) I had to go there. (laughs) Okay, so what is their footprint of pollination? I'm sure this obviously fluctuates a good amount based on the vast majority of these different species of bees. Do you have any numbers that that you know of? Yeah, so it's really, really common to hear oh, bees are responsible for one third of the food that we eat. This is not exactly correct, okay, but it's not a terrible, terrible estimation. Bees contribute in some way to about 35% of the food we're consuming. Not all of these plants are completely only pollinated by bees. 
but they do contribute quite a lot to the food that we eat, especially because they're pollinating a lot of our nutrient-dense foods like fruits and vegetables versus mm -hmm. stuff like rice or wheat or corn. It's wind-pollinated. It doesn't need bees. Right. Bees also can help pollinate these self-pollinated plants um, just by spreading pollen a bit more. It can increase their yields a little bit with cotton as well. So our clothing too, bees mm -hmm. contribute a little bit to that, nothing crazy, but yeah, somewhere around 35%-ish, um, give or take, you know, what right. crop it is, let's say. They're, gotcha. they're very helpful to us. And also the honey and wax industries are massive, massive industries in agriculture. Billions that make, of dollars. I think billions, yes. <laughs> wow. That's insane. Also, shout out to the other pollinators, man, like <laughs> the butterflies, <laughs> the mosquitoes, the flies, etc. I Give know. Them some credit. The, the poor, poor other pollinators who don't get any credit <laughs> for all the hard work they do. That's right. I was going to ask about the waggle dance, just because I think that's so fascinating. The fact that their directionality is relative to the sun, which is so, so awesome. And then also ask a question on that if honeybees were the only species of bees that do the waggle dance or if this is like a common occurrence for anything that has a social structure of any kind uh, honeybees are the only ones that do it to my to my knowledge interesting do you find that they're like the domineering bee because of all of these advanced capabilities or do you just think that we give them that crown just because of agriculture if agriculture didn't exist do you think that they would be a domineering species Yes, we have okay. been infatuated with honeybees since like ancient Egypt times. Mm. You know what I mean? There's portraits. They're very ingrained in culture. But again, they are still producing honey. And that is something that people were using then as well. So it's hard to say like if agriculture didn't exist, we, we were getting a product for them for the entire existence of mankind, I think. Very true. <laughs> but I think that people find them quite charismatic because of how unique they are they're rather friendly they're fuzzy yeah i mean for like an insect they're quite cute i would say compared yeah. to a lot of the other types of insects right so so fair um yeah. people have definitely been drawn to honeybees and stingless bees forever um and both of those produce honey so that's right well, on that note, we're going to go into a commercial break. But when we come back, we're going to talk about some interesting news and global trends. So stick around. Are you an athlete who is constantly on the grind? Maybe you're a student who's cramming for an 8 a.m. exam the next day. Or maybe you're someone who's crushing a hike and you have three peaks to go. Well, you've come to the right ad. Sigma snacks are a healthy alternative to pre-workout and energy drinks. These snacks deliver easily digestible sugars and carbs necessary to crush an early morning workout, late night study sesh, or any adventure in between. By combining caffeine and the amino acid L-theanine, these bars are backed by scientific research to provide clean energy, extra focus, and reduce the anxiety and crash that are associated with normal pre-workout and junk energy drinks. Not to mention, they taste great. Specifically, I have been taking them with me on my backpacking adventures. They're a great way to start the day without having any jitters or an upset stomach on the trail. Lastly, Sigma Snacks is a student-run, student-operated startup that would like to offer you 15% off your first purchase with the promo code STEAM. 
So head on over to EatSigmaSnacks.com and order your first Sigma snack today to have the best and most reliable source of energy shipped right to your door. That's EatSigmaSnacks.com, promo code STEAM for energy that's out of this world. All right, we're back here. This is segment two. And Abby and I will mostly Abby because she's the expert, but we're going to be talking about the global trends, what we're seeing with bee populations. And we thought that we would start, you know, at home with everyone and then branch out to native bees. So we're going to talk about honeybees at first, that way you can kind of get a sense of what's going on and then branch out so you get a better understanding of the full picture. Abby, would you like to take it away and talk about some of the things that we're seeing with honeybee populations? Yeah, so I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with colony collapse disorder, which was a big issue facing honeybee hives in agriculture and sort of where the save the bee movement stemmed from, let's say. And honeybees face a variety of issues due to domestication. So because they're being used in agriculture as agricultural animals, they face issues with diseases just like a chicken would, for example. You know, chickens have Newcastle and Salmonella, and these tend to just be bred into the chickens because they're all in one area. There's a lot of them. So it's the same type of thing with honeybees in apiaries. Varroa mites are the biggest issue that honeybees are facing on one of the causes of colony collapse disorder. Mm -hmm. So varroa mites are parasites that are feeding on the honeybees. This can lead to the death of the hive ultimately. And it's a really big problem that beekeepers and apiaries and agricultural areas we're all facing. Are they now in Australia? The Like whenever I wrote that research blog I was telling you about, they weren't in Australia, at least at the time of the report that I was reading. Are they in Australia now? Because obviously they're, they're not in Antarctica, but I've heard that they're in every other major continent. I'm 99% sure, yes, that they're in <laughs> Australia as well. Oh, sorry, I was trying to throw some good news in there. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I could be wrong. Hopefully, uh, let's let's hope that Abby's wrong. But I believe in her in that in that manner. Varroomites are a very interesting case, right? Because they not only ride the backs of bees, but they also spread based on bee reproduction. They'll be like encapsulated with the larvae, and then they'll like feed and attach to the larvae, and then whenever the larvae come out of the wax cap then the varroa might still stick onto the bee, but then also go everywhere. <laughs> so it's like a, it's a crazy infestation in the hive and then also in the individual bee. Crazy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're very, very small, so it's easy for them to multiply and spread and stick onto the bees. So mm -hmm. they're quite a difficult pest to get rid of. I know with conventional agriculture, the one obvious way to combat having lots of individuals, let's say side by side working together in small square area is to use pharmaceuticals. Is that something that they're trying to do with bee populations as well? Are they introducing pharmaceuticals to slow down the rate of transmission of different viruses? So yes, 
there are a variety of treatments that are used for varroa mites. Some of these are targeted pesticides, essentially, and some are medications. My understanding is that they have varied effectiveness. Some small beekeepers struggle a lot with varroa mites, constantly killing their hives, and other groups seem to have success with it. So I think it has mixed abilities. Interesting. There's different causalities, different effects between how we utilize pharmaceuticals and in, in agriculture. Um, most of the time, I'll just throw out, this is my opinion that it's it's not really good. <laughs> not really. Uh, pharmaceuticals definitely need to be used with care and caution, I would say. Yeah. How about this, um, the neonicotinoids? Neonic- neonicotinoids. Neonicotinoids. Yes. Are are you familiar with those? Yeah. So neonicotinoids are a type of pesticide that are used very commonly, both in agriculture as well as like ornamental plants. So like trees that you will see in a median in a parking lot, for example, Um, they're really commonly treated with neonicotinoids. Um, They're a very serious pesticide. (laughs) They kill everything like they really mean it and then these will leach into the soils and if bees are nesting in the soil for example um, we've seen with bumblebees that neonicotinoid exposure can reduce their ability to learn and their memory capabilities Um, if it isn't outright killing the insect it can have really adverse effects on their capabilities wow my thousand foot overview understanding of that is neonicotinoids were a approved substitute for DDT. Yes, my other favorite pesticide. <laughs> I shouldn't be I shouldn't be batting a, a batting a thousand here, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Haven't heard good things about either of those. A DDT is is it phased out? I thought it was kind of illegal to use DDT. I don't know about globally, but at least in the United States it's not used anymore. Correct. Gotcha. Praise the Lord. It was killing literally everything. So (laughs) what are the different like human effects, obviously, other than agriculture that are affecting honeybees? Or is that mainly just a is that mainly just an effect on native bees for what we do like human to human industrially? Oh, okay. Good question. Mm-hmm. Um, so honeybees obviously are not really affected by habitat loss because they're not native uh, in the United States, at least. Um, so habitat loss is a really big factor that's affecting native bees. Um, we're seeing pretty strong trends of bee diversity decline in agricultural and urban areas. So that's quite a big issue that native bees are facing that honeybees in the United States at least don't really. Pesticide use is something that affects both groups. Mm-hmm. Honeybees are, I would say, more resilient to pesticide use than native bees. That's for a couple of reasons. One is that they're not nesting in the ground. So all those pesticides mm-hmm. that are getting soaked into the ground, those don't really affect honeybees. That affects you know, the other 70 something percent of bees that are nesting in the ground. And you'll actually see like the higher a pesticide is like the concentration in the ground, the less likely you are to see bees. They'll follow a gradient very simply of pesticide Mm. use. And then climate change is the next big factor. Uh, Everyone's favorite topic. 
<laughs> yes, this is definitely something I would say is affecting native bees more than honeybees. Again, just because of that introduced aspect. I mean, honeybees mm -hmm. are never going to go extinct. They're managed by people. That's not the same case for, for native bees. So climate change affects bees in a couple of different ways. One is potentially decreasing their ranges, right? So if it gets too hot in mm. an area where they need, you know, a particular temperature, they might be moving further north, further north until it gets too cold, and then their range will end up shrinking. This is something we pretty commonly see in bumblebees in particular. It can cause fall emergence like emergences of the bees so it'll get too warm in the fall and that will trigger the bee to think oh it's it's spring time to come out and begin my life um and then there will be a frost the next week so mm. you know it'll kill them or any eggs that they laid interesting and then extreme weather events caused by climate change obviously cause issues with drought flowers won't emerge when they're supposed to and then there will mm. be this like temporal mismatch between the bee and the flower they're missing the flowers that they're supposed to be feeding on that type of thing even wildfire devastation to increase wildfires yeah wildfires um really extreme ones can have really negative effects on bees yeah one thing that maybe uh, is just might be a dumb question i don't know but um i know some species biologically their reproduction is affected by temperature are there bee species that are also being affected by temperature increase? Yeah, that's a great question. So in terms of reproduction, we don't really know. Bee egg production in native bees, at least, is actually not that well studied. So we are not really completely sure about the survivability of eggs in heat waves, for example. And that's something that I'm hoping to look at, actually, in my Textual hey. dissertation is <laughs> looking at how bees are affected by these extreme heat events and whether they can survive them or if it kills them. Interesting. So three major, maybe four major things that we have highlighted that impact honeybees and also intertwine with native bees. Climate change, of course, varroa mites, neonicotinoids and then the influence of human activity that is outside of agriculture so one thing that we didn't really touch on is how we structure our properties lawns you know so to speak for some reason back in the 60s there was a movement in the fertilizer industry that said people in the united states that have a certain type of lawn like a certain profile of a lawn is poor like, for example, clovers or native flowers, it was associated that you were poor if you just grew what was there. And that has had an absolute killer effect, literally killer effect, to native bee populations. Would you like to add on to that? Or maybe, I, I don't know, <laughs> maybe I hit it. Uh, yeah, on the head you did a great job explaining it. So there's a lot of issues with the way that we develop you know, our urban areas, our suburbs, and our houses. So one is the concrete covering everything, right? There's nothing really living in sidewalks, roads, these types of things. And then as you're talking about sort of the lawn culture, because these are non-native turf grasses that we're using for a lawn. 
we're mowing them, so that's cutting any sort of flower that would even attempt to grow. Right. Uh, they're getting sprayed with pesticides often, and we're using up all types of water that we shouldn't be using in the middle of desert areas. I'm looking at you, Las Vegas. Don't even get me started about Arizona. <laughs> Arizona's just as bad. Like, I drive to work. Yeah. I'm not going to say where I work or where I drive, but I drive to work, and there's sprinklers on at 3 p.m., and it's like, yo. And also, don't even get me started about golf courses. Whole nother topic someday. I'm going to do like a water consumption uh, episode and we will talk about golf courses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's, I think we should just finish out this segment and talk about some positive things, right? Cause we've been explaining a lot of negative things. Um, but I mean, obviously like we discussed before we jumped into the segment is that yes, it is, you know, kind of a down in the dumps portion of the episode, but like, it's just super important for the individual to, realize what's going on you know it affects the way that you make decisions moving forward you know to know like how your lawn is impacting things or who you could vote for that would change the way we do agriculture in that manner or who you could vote for both locally state level federal that would do things for agriculture and climate change and transportation how we set up our urban cities or our urban societies so i digress on that let's let's talk about something that's a little more positive other than like voting and being informed abby what do you recommend that the individual like myself could do to help positively impact bee populations there are a lot of really simple things that you can do um, to help support bees we're essentially trying to put more diversity back into the area that you're living right so uh, rather than having these green lawns with only one non-native grass species, planting some native plants. And it doesn't have to be, you know, go all in and start filling up your whole yard with native plants. You can start really simple with planter boxes, window planters, potted native plants. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a really simple way to start providing some habitat and food for native pollinators. Then uh, if you're not into gardening, there's the option of a bee hotel as well, which, you know, you can make them yourself or you can purchase one. And those will attract some native cavity nesting bee and wasp species that will come and use it as a nesting resource. Of course, writing your reps and voting, as you mentioned, are really great ways to get involved. And also just teaching other people about it, letting them know, saying, hey, native pollinators are important. Here's what you can do in your yard, spreading the word and spreading it to organizations that you're in, for example. Like at a school I was at, I really advocated for native plants to be put into our local little garden rather than the ornamental plants that they were putting in. And a lot of the times you'll go to these like board meetings and say, hey, here's what I think we should do and they'll even say oh you know i never thought of that that's a great idea we will do that you know it's very simple to make a difference a lot of the time it's just putting mm -hmm. forth a little bit of effort mm -hmm. but there are a lot of really great things you can do even in an apartment building like having window planters that all will help native bees i don't really like doing this but i'm going to do it anyways so i'm going to shamelessly plug my research blog so I have like four different research blogs out right now. One's for reduce, reuse, recycling. 
One's for the efficacy of, of having trees around in the environment. So it's just called plant a tree. The other one is rightfully called save the bees. And then also one on commercial fishing. And the idea behind it is to have like a t-shirt with an emblem where the emblem is like a bee on it. And on like the sleeve of the t-shirt is a QR code. And if you scan the QR code, it goes right to that research blog. So you are intertwined with your symbol of what you want to promote and what you want to learn about. So if anybody's interested in, in learning a little bit more or just getting different sources about bees, then be sure to check that out because I, I never get to plug that stuff. So I'm, I'm doing it here. <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. As you should. Yes, absolutely. So I don't know if I have anything else to add to this. Do you have anything else to add before we jump into our last commercial break and we get into segment three? No, I think I'm okay. Sweet. Okay. Shamelessly plugged. That was the end. I just, I just killed it. <laughs> Sorry about that out there. But if you do check it out, I would appreciate it. You got to do what you got to do. We're going to conclude this segment and we're going to run into segment three where we're going to wrap up and talk about the mishmash of bees and Abby. So stick around for that. <laughs> Have you ever been standing in the shower looking at the ingredients on your shampoo bottle and noticed that water is always the first ingredient? Well, I have. After a little research, I discovered that shampoo is over 80% water, which is kind of like dumping bottled water on your head while you're standing in a shower. And that's why I'm excited that I found Seabar, a disposable plastic free hair care line that cleans up ocean trash with every purchase. Not only does Seabar pick up one pound of ocean trash for every item ordered, but their salon quality shampoo and conditioner concentrates come from refillable applicators, kind of like deodorant tubes. Just twist them up, rub it on over your hair a couple times, and then just lather it up like you normally would. My favorite part is how long they last. I've personally been using the same C-Bar for three months now and I've barely used any. So not only does it help save the environment, it's also effective, efficient, and most importantly, it saves me money. If you would like to try a better way to wash your hair, head on over to cbar.com and use our special code STEAM for 15% off your first order. C-Bar, shampoo done right for you and the planet. Yes, this is our last segment. If you stuck around this long, I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. There's been a, a lot of interesting information thrown out there, both very informative and very interesting, in my opinion. Like if you're a layperson like me, just having an appreciation for bees. So this last segment, we're going to talk about Abby and her contributions and her studies in entomology. Abby, first of all, what was your path to entomology? Why did you even choose to get into this field in the first place? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say I'm not a typical entomologist in the way that I got into the field. A lot of people grew up, you know, loving bugs and always being interested in them. I hated bugs growing <laughs> up. Okay, I thought like creepy crawly things really gave me like the heebie-jeebies. I did not like them at all. Um, and then when I was in high school, I was taking my biology course and we were actually required to do an insect collection as part of our class, which is pretty unusual, I think, for a high school biology class. And we, you know, were running around outside collecting bugs with our hands. And um, it was a lot for someone who didn't really like bugs that much. But I found I really, really liked it when we took them back 
home to identify. And when, you know, the insect is dead and you can actually look at all of its interesting features to figure out what it is, what family it's in. It's like I was noticing things that I had never noticed before with insects. Mm -hmm. So that's what first kind of piqued my interest. And when I went to undergrad, I majored in biology. And at first I was like, oh, I'll probably go into like pharmaceutical synthesis or some cutting edge genetic technology thing. (laughs) And I took a few chem classes, a few intro bio classes. And I was like, "Mm, actually, I like plants and bugs. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so I've sort of stuck with it. I started at first working in a fruit fly lab studying evolution. So I was looking at like the speciation between two sister species of fruit flies. Um, And eventually I migrated my way over to bees and I've stuck with them. That's fair. I think bees are like an easy insect to get attracted to. They're so, I mean, I hate to take it away from all the other insects. They're all really interesting. Don't get me wrong. Uh, But like, I don't know, bees are just, they just hit home for some reason. They're very interesting. Yeah. Cool. No, that's really cool. So what do you plan to work on now specifically in your PhD track? My work is going to be focused on pollinator ecology. I'm really interested in how bees use space. So I'm hoping to look at how extreme climatic events like heat waves affect bees and affects where they're nesting and where they're gathering food from. Where are you going to be taking your data from? Are you going to be doing it locally or are you going to be doing something that's a little more national and or global? So I'll definitely be doing some experiments at the local scale. And then I have potential to expand it, um, you know, in the state of California or through the Pacific Northwest. So we'll see where the road takes me, I suppose. That's fair. So would you say that that entomology, but specifically studying bees, has a lot of information? Or do you think that there's not a lot of data sources to go off of as an entomologist? Yeah, that's a really good question. So honeybees are very, very well studied, again, because of their importance in agriculture. But Mm -hmm. Native bees have sort of slipped through the cracks, I feel like, in terms of available information compared to a lot of other animals. We really don't know that much about native bees, which is really strange considering how important they are. But yeah, there's a really big need for more information. Well, definitely. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) you can't make any claims without well i said sorry we're in the wrong we're in the wrong time frame to be saying that <laughs> Never mind. Let, me, <laughs> let me retract Backtrack. <laughs> yeah uh people make a lot of claims without any without any data behind it but no that's that's good that's good that you're also contributing to the lack thereof of data which is good specifically because whenever i even asked the question earlier about like does temperature affect sexual reproduction there's not a lot to be said there so that's really good and and that's also really fruitful for people who are coming up in biology and 
don't really know a direction to go towards, you know, because, you know, when you think about biology as a whole, you think of it as being something that's extremely flooded. But then there's these niche categories within biology that just really need attention because if bees start to disappear more and more, that's a big red flag. That's a scary red flag. Jeez, that's like a monumental red flag. Come to entomology. We need you. <laughs> yeah, don't. Um, we have enough engineers. Go, go study bees. We met biology students, okay? Only entomologists from here on out. <laughs> yeah, there, there are a lot of you out there. <laughs> so, Abby, do you have any, like, lasting advice for people who are pursuing entomology or for people who are even just doing science communication like yourself? I mean, do you want to, like, talk about your science communication really quick? Yeah, I'd love to talk about it. I started doing SciComm on TikTok in 2020. It was a little COVID hobby for me yeah. at first. I had a lot of spare time on my hands. I was like, oh, let's make videos for TikTok. This will be fun. And I remember specifically thinking before my first video, like, oh, am I going to try and, you know, do what everyone else is doing and follow all the same trends? Or can I take this trend and can I make it about bees? I think that would be hilarious. <laughs> and so it just started from there. And I, people liked it. I don't know why, to be honest. I mean, I just felt like it did well. And I had my first ever viral video where I was singing Lizzo's Boys, uh, but <laughs> made it bees and was singing, showing different bees, you know? And nice. Like, bing, bing. Itty bitty bees. Yep. It was it was great. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Uh, so I've stuck with it and um, also expanded over to Instagram. And I've had some really amazing collaborations. I was sponsored in 2022 by Hank Green to create science content. And I've had some brand partnerships. So it's all been really great and fun. And I think it's very important to get into science communication mm -hmm. as a scientist, because what's the point in doing the science if no one's going to learn about it? Exactly. I, I totally agree. We need to drop <laughs> the whole idea of um, gatekeeping information because People who do science like to use really, really big terms and make papers at such a high status of, of intellect rather than talking down to the people that are really, you know, that are seeking the information. Like, of course, like it's easy for an entomologist to entomologist to read an entomology paper, but not for someone like me who studies physics and engineering to go, you know, what? I really like bees. I want to learn about solitary bees. And, you know, you look it up and you're like, what the hell is going on here? It's good that we have science communication because it's taking away that gatekeeping and it's putting information out there. So people are definitely more informed and, and less in the dark. And I think that's one of the main reasons why we're in a misinformed world at the moment. One of the reasons. There's just plenty of reasons, but that's one of them. It's hard when there's so much content and information available to sift through it and say what's good and, and what's not good. I mean, it's not an easy skill to develop. So I think like having science communicators who are reliable and consistently, you know, show mm -hmm. where they're getting their information and why they're saying the things that they're saying, it's really important. 
I agree. So did I'm just curious, just because I'm a big uh, Hank Green fan. Uh, Hank and John, yeah. they're, they're awesome people. I love them. I talk about them all the time. How did that happen? Did they, he just like reached out to you on Instagram or what? Yeah, he just sent me a message on TikTok. Um, he had followed me a while ago, sometime in 2021. And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe like Hank Green has watched my science videos. Like, yeah. are you kidding me? And yeah. then he messaged me and said, you know, that him and John and their vlog brothers channel, um, all of the revenue that's raised for that half of it goes to charity and the other half goes to supporting small content creators. Wow. So something like eight or nine people received sponsorships from him, like um, Black Forager, if you know her, Alexis. Mm -mm. um she got a sponsorship but nice. or um the garbage queen elena a couple oh, of really yeah. cool people <laughs> yeah that's awesome wow i i honestly just started science communication i guess last year but more heavily this year specifically because i just i moved out here to arizona from pennsylvania and you know i needed some things to do and i just really enjoy it one thing that that got me started was realizing the misinformation complexity through the pandemic, but also I really, really enjoy teaching my nieces things whenever I'm around them. And I'm like, you know what? I have a physics background. I have an engineering background. I love to read just different papers. I love to read books about different sciences, et cetera. Why, why am I not like projecting this stuff? And then I got into it. Now I'm more into TikTok. I'm starting to build on TikTok. It's it's slow. It's very slow, especially if you don't do a lot of the the clickbaity trends and stuff. I don't. I try to keep it either reaction videos or just like interesting topics that I think are cool or that people reach out to me to do. But yeah, I've only been doing it for so long. But man, it's it's fun and it can be quite rewarding to get like just even people comment and be like, "That was a really cool video." Like I never knew that. You know, that's it's good stuff. What? I mean, and even on TikTok, for example, let's say your video gets 100 views. Okay, it feels like, oh, that's not that many views. When you think about sitting in a room and speaking to 100 people, like it that's seems fair. like quite a lot more. You know what I mean? It's like you are getting your word out there, even if you feel like you don't have that many views. Like to me, that, that part's not that important, how many views it has, because somebody's going to hear it. And that's what's important. That's a very good perspective that I have not heard yet. Because I think today in how we do things like on social media, we're so worried about the likes, the comments, the shares, the views. And, you know, it should be more about did I create quality content? And are you satisfied with not even are you satisfied, but like you, you produce quality content to whomever wants to indulge in it. So that's a good one. I like that. It's really good. Do you have any lasting advice for anyone now since we talked about your Psycom? Oh, yeah. I forgot yes. about that. No, you're good. <laughs> you're good. Oh, if you want to become an entomologist, it's a tricky one. Um, follow your passion and kind of see where it takes you. I wouldn't be rigid in saying I need to live in this state or I for sure want to work with only this insect. You know, when you're a bit more open-minded about these kind of things, a lot of different opportunities can come to you that you never even knew were possible, I feel like. I love that. No, that's good. That's a good way, I think, to end this episode. Abby, this has been 
really good. Like I, I really enjoyed this episode. I got to actually ask a lot of questions. Sorry for all of them, but <laughs> no, I no, loved it. Was, it was so fun. It was great. No, it was good. And and actually, to anybody who is watching or listening to this, this is the first time that Abby and I have conversed. So. Other than just, you know, through Instagram DMs. This is the only way that we have conversed. And this was this was a great episode. So, Abby, thank you for coming on to the podcast. I appreciate it. That is all for this episode of Everything Steam. Now I'd like to give a big shout out to Abby for taking her time to share some expertise in a niche field of entomology surrounding bees. If you love science, entomology, and cool content, I recommend you give Abby a follow like I did on TikTok and Instagram. The links to do so will be in the description or on our website, everythingsteam.org. Or heck, just search Entomology Abbey on those platforms. I would also love to mention my amazing team for their collective efforts to make the show happen. This podcast was edited by Ariel Piermont, marketed by Courtney Page, QC'd by Panya Pit Erickson, and our episode art was manifested by Gabrielle Edmiston. After the episode, please give our podcast a rating and review on whatever platform you get your podcasts on. We are always looking for feedback, and the rating would greatly help us out in the fight against the algorithms. Lastly, be sure to check us out on all the socials for podcast news, upcoming episodes, and just fun Steam content. Just search Everything Steam on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and Reddit to join in on that fun. Once again, thank you for listening to Everything Steam. I am your host, Sam Stanford, and as always, stay curious. Everything Steam would like to give a shout out to Anchor by Spotify for sponsoring our podcast along with Ben Cell Music for providing our show with intro, outro, and advertising background rhythm.